Almighty God, Father, you're over all, you're through all, you are in all. You transcend time and space. You rule the entire cosmos. Praise be to the true King of all creation. We're guilty of treason as your creation. We've tried foolishly to play the part of King of our own lives. King of our homes. Ignoring sin issues within relationships. Thinking that it's somehow an act of love or that we may or may not be making peace through our actions. Forgive us. King of our jobs. Creating a path to success regardless of the neglect of Christ, the neglect of His church, and the neglect of our families. Forgive us. King of our desires. Allowing our desires to reign supreme. Failing to even consider whether or not the desire came from our flesh or from your spirit. Our choices have sinfully said, King of my life, I crown me now. Mine shall the glory be. Forgive us for our foolishness in rejecting the high king of the universe. Without Christ, you call us condemned. But in Jesus, you call us friend. And at this very moment, we know that everyone within this room is in one of those two categories, either condemned by God or forgiven by God. They're in the kingdom of darkness or they're in the kingdom of light. They're lost or found. We want our desire this morning to echo yours. We want to be found in Christ Having a righteousness that's not our own. A righteousness that can come only from God. Since you're the source of that righteousness, we pray to you that you would know, that we would know your character. That you would know and reveal our hearts. That we would know your word. And that you would fill us with the knowledge of your holy will. That we today might not have earthly wisdom, but spiritual wisdom spiritual understanding we want sound understanding that leads to sound living we desire to please you in everything but we're incapable of this unless you'll enable us so enable us to live in a way that reflects your worth bear fruit in us so that our behavior today will match our belief so that our conduct will align with our confession By your sovereign power, strengthen each of us for joyful endurance. As we, the church, turn to your word, use it to answer our request. Use your word to mature us as your body. Use your word to increase our gratitude for your work in our lives. Use your word to equip us for love and for good works. Use your word now to make much of Jesus Christ. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Our last study in Colossians navigated us through verses 3 through 14. In those verses, we learned that our corporate goal as a body is that Christ might be pleased in all things. That Christ might be pleased in all things. Pleasing the Lord 
should be the goal of every Christian. We move now today to this summit passage, this mountaintop of Christocentric texts in verses 15 to 20. And we find an answer for how we are to walk worthily, for how we are to please Christ in all things. Now, a reminder of what it means to walk worthy. We walk worthy when every effort of our life displays the matchless worth of Christ. The worth of Christ being made known through our manner of living. Every effort of our life displaying Christ's matchless worth. Now, you may be thinking, I've read these verses before, but they're not necessarily filled with commands for the Christian. I read these verses and I didn't see any directives necessarily on how we are to live in a way that pleases God. So how would it answer that question? Well, Paul will get to commands in the book of Colossians, but not before he lays out the fuel that will drive obedience to those commands. So instead of a to-do list here, Paul gives the Colossians this rich Christocentric word. He paints a word picture that gives a majestic answer to the question, Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now I'll say that there's not much argument when it comes to these six verses that these verses are the goat passage on the supremacy of Christ. Now this passage on the supremacy of Christ though is Paul's launching point. So when he does correct, when he does command throughout the rest of the book, the Colossians can trace the corrections and commands back to this key portion of text. That helps us today in understanding that the Colossians were going to live in step with the gospel only if they understood something. If they were going to be faithful to Christ and to His cause, if they were going to not be driven away by false teaching, they needed to think and they needed to believe rightly concerning Jesus Christ. They needed a proper view of Christ. That is exactly what you and I need today. A proper view of Christ is necessary if you and I will live lives that display Christ's worth. We'll never make much of something or anyone until we value them. We must know Christ. That's why Paul prayed this. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. To know Christ. To have a proper view of Christ. That's what the Colossians needed in this day. That is what we need today. Some of you are super adventurous. You love outdoor life. I'll keep it simple. I'm not. But I am happy for you. I'm happy that you're adventurous, that you love spending time outdoors. As a kid, I enjoyed a camping trip occasionally, but as an adult, it's like a switch flipped for me. When I'm outside or when I'm camping now, the one time every two years that I do, all I can think about is the comfort of my own home, and secondly, my mortgage payment. Just wonder, why am I paying for my home and sleeping here? One thing I actually do enjoy about the outdoors, though, is a breathtaking view. I'm sure most of you would say the same thing. Now, for me and other kids growing up in Atlanta, we enjoyed a breathtaking view, but we knew there was only one mountain in the south. 
Stone Mountain. So my family would make that excursion pretty often, sometimes accompanied with a camping trip, but we would always climb or just walk up this mountain, this big hill of a rock. Because what reward would there have been in riding the sky lift? There's no reward in that. So as we walked up, my dad would remind us how that when he was a youth, he'd run up the mountain and he'd do it in boots and in leg weights. So we'd listen like it was the first time we heard it. I would imagine him and Rocky running up this mountain, waiting to get to the top. And after a 45-minute trek, maybe an hour trek, we made it to the top. When we got to the top, though, we weren't staring down at this big rock beneath our feet anymore. On the way up, we were. But when we got up there, instead of staring at this big rock, we turned our gaze outward. And we said, wow, would you look at that? Atlanta. No, we actually didn't say that. It probably sounded more like, I am hungry. Can we get something to eat from that shop over there? Now, most of you have been to mountaintops or to better views, much greater, much better than the view that I just described of Atlanta from Stone Mountain, and you can even see six flags out in the distance somewhere. But the point is the same. As you near that destination, what happens? Your view gets bigger and bigger. You get more and more interested as you look out across this vast space. The more you gaze off into the distance, the more you want to see. That's why they charge you a dollar for those binocular machines that don't work. Yeah, you get the biggest, clearest view, and then you realize something. When you get the clearest view, you look out and you say, there is so much more to see. There is so much more to explore. So think of our view of Christ in those terms. A proper view of Christ, proper, a correct view, is an ever-ascending view. We continue to explore and we're amazed at the depth and the fullness of the riches that are found in him. And the more we explore, the higher we esteem him. We never reach the peak of that understanding. The more we gaze at Christ, the more we understand that there is so much more to know. Now this morning, some of you are struggling. You're struggling in the day-to-day just to make sense of your life. This passage today should remind us that your life, our lives, and everything else will only make sense when Christ is kept in proper view. Maybe today you'd say, I'm committed to Christ, but you see traces of wavering in your commitment. Maybe you look back and reflect on disobedience and you say, this disobedience reflects that I don't value Christ like I should. I say to you, the only way you'll value Christ as you should is if you have a proper view of him. Maybe right now you're in another category. You're thinking, I've heard who Jesus is, but so what? I don't know what the big deal is. What's the big deal with Jesus? If that's what you're saying today, I can guarantee you, you don't have a proper view of Jesus But before you walked in these doors, multiple people prayed for you today. They prayed that you would see Jesus with eyes of faith. 
They pray that you would be awestruck by who this Jesus is and what he's done for you. A proper view of Christ is foundational. It's necessary for Christian living. God help us today to see clearly who Christ is and to see him in truth. We'll view this Christ in our passage in two movements. First, verses 15 to 17, we'll see Christ as Lord of creation. And secondly, in verses 18 through 20, we'll see Christ as Lord of salvation. Christ as Lord of creation and Christ as Lord of salvation. Let's read this passage together. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." Placing each movement side by side helps us to see several parallels within our passage. We're going to move quickly through these next few slides to see these initial observations. Notice the word all. We see it repeated seven times here in our passage. And then in connection to that word, a word of exclusivity, everything. Consider that the claims that the Apostle Paul is making here are exclusive claims all everything another parallel we see here is in the words he is verse 15 he is the image of the invisible god verse 18 he is the head of the body the church the next parallel we see is firstborn verse 15 he is the firstborn of all creation verse 18 he is the firstborn from The dead. Then we see, for by him all things in verse number 16. Then we glance over at the parallel in verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Then continuing here, we see through him and for him in verse 16. And then in verse 20, that through him to reconcile to himself all things. Then lastly, we see this word weather. Weather amplifying the terms and the language of exclusivity throughout the passage. We'll look at each of these things as we continue throughout our study, but it's good to see them side to side again in two stanzas, these parallels, the Lord of creation, verses 15 to 17, the Lord of salvation, 18 through 20, viewing them as two paragraphs or two stanzas. So first, the Lord of creation. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God's like, if you want to know who God is, what God does, then look at Jesus. Look 
at God's Son, Christ Jesus. Christ brings clarity to any blurry view we might have of God. He shows us what God's like. Christ shows us who God is and what God does. And as Kent Hughes says, Jesus is literally the exegesis of God. In Christ, we see all that God is, not part of what God is. Because Jesus Christ is God, and Jesus Christ existed in eternity with Him. Christ is God's image. He's an exact representation of God Himself. He's a visible portrait of the invisible God, revealing the personal character of God. So we could say that Christ shows us God's righteousness. That Christ shows us God's goodness, His wisdom, His power. Or in short, we could say Christ shows us God's entire self. But He's not just a visible representation of Him. He is God. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we see this image language. It says that we were created in His image. Understand that we were created to be something, but we failed miserably. And in Colossians 1 and verse 15, Paul says that Jesus is the image of God. Christ is what you and I were meant to be in terms of righteous living, but we failed to be that. So we move from his relationship to the Father, now in the passage, to his relationship with creation. Our passage says he's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. Everything began with God. Everything began with Jesus. Both of those statements are unequivocally true. The term firstborn of all creation must be understood in context of this passage and in the context of the whole of Scripture. This does not mean that Christ was created. That heresy is first noted in the 4th century, but it continues today through JWs. A Jehovah's Witness might come to your door and they might use this very passage in an attempt to deceive you. Good news you don't have to turn to a different passage to prove the falsehood in this belief. The belief that Christ was created by God. Let's look at the context of our passage. Verse 16, we understand something, but verse 15 can't mean that Christ was the first of others created since verse 16 says that all creation came into existence by or through Him. Verse 16, for by him, all things were created. What things? Where? In heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Again, all things were created through him and for him. That's exclusive. There is nothing. This is language that says everything, all things were made through him. John said it this way in John chapter 1 and verse 3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. It's pretty clear. As R.C. Sproul said, 
There are no maverick molecules. No maverick molecules. Everything under his control. This term firstborn, it means that highest honor is his. It means that he's the creator and that he is over all his creation. There's no debate here. Christ is supreme. Now in the scriptures, God referred to Israel as his firstborn. And then in Psalm 89, we see King David referred to as the king that will be placed as the firstborn or appointed as firstborn. Now what that means is that Israel would be an exalted nation over every other nation. What this means is that David would be an exalted king over all other kings. So Christ is the firstborn means that Christ is exalted over all. There is nothing he did not create. He created all things again in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. One author rightly said that the earth is littered with the ruins of empires that believed they were, they were eternal. The world, the earth, is littered with the ruins of empires that believed they were eternal. What we see through history, they are not. There is only one who is eternal. He made everything and he owns everything. He will have zero rivals. Verse 16 tells us something else about the creator, about Christ. It says, all things were created by him and for him. Now this is an unparalleled statement. Paul says that the universe came into existence for him. Meaning that Christ is the very goal of all creation. Christ, the goal of all creation. You and I and all things exist for a goal. That goal is the creator. The goal of the creation is the creator. And you and I exist to bring glory to the creator. We were created by him for him. Even the powers in this world that are in rebellion to him exist to bring him glory. The Lord of all creation is their Lord. Verse 17 says that he is before all things. That restates his supremacy. He is before all things. His rulership. When we say he's before all things and understand it in this passage, we understand that that's in both time. He is before in time, but he is also before in rank. Christ is Lord of creation. He transcends it all. Nothing and no one exists independently of him. We know this because verse 17 goes on to say that in him, all things hold together. Now this is huge. He sustains all things. He's the reason why there is a cosmos instead of chaos. Believer and unbeliever alike, you are dependent on Christ whether you recognize it or not. It's through Christ that you live. It's through Christ that you move and you have your being. 
Now, there's an improper view of Christ himself that doesn't align with our passage. That God created the world, and then that God left the world to be. It acknowledges that he created all things, but it refuses to acknowledge his lordship of all things today. Now, before you write that off and say, not guilty, I don't believe that, hear me out. While you may not say that or believe that, your life may be functioning like you do. After a string of what you've called bad luck, you determine that God's not too worried about the small details of your insignificant life. You begin to wonder, God, are you even really aware? And if you are aware, I'm sure you don't have time to get caught up with little old me. Maybe, and most commonly I think, this looks like making decisions from day to day and not considering Christ. Decision after decision, never even thinking of the church. Their life choices in this situation declare a level of autonomy. Their choices say, no one tells me what to do. Nothing's going to influence the choices I make. Others might say simply, I've lived my whole life without Jesus and I'm fine. A proper view of Christ will put an end to any of those thoughts. Christ is the reason that you were born. And He's the reason you're alive today. You've never breathed a single breath that Jesus didn't gift you. The Lord of creation is holding you together. Without Him, you would revert to the nothingness and to the chaos that existed before God created. So stop living like you're not dependent on your Creator. Stop trying to make sense of your life apart from Jesus. Your life is only going to make sense when you have this proper view of Christ. When Christ is at the center. When Christ is before all things in rank in your heart. View Christ properly. See Him as the Lord of creation. Today you might feel that God is distant from you. This truth should be a great comfort. He's not far away. Christ is the divine glue that's holding you together. He holds all things together. And if Christ is sustaining the entire universe, I'm sure He'll sustain you. If Christ sustains the entire universe, He will sustain you. If He knows how to order the universe, surely He knows how to order your life. What a jarring truth this should serve to be. One that should stretch our tiny minds, one that should take over our thinking and radically change us. Christ is the Lord of creation. You were made by Him and you were made for Him. Are you walking a life that's worthy? Are you walking a life fully pleasing to God in all things? Do your behaviors, your choices declare the matchless worth of Christ? Is the Lord of creation the Lord of your life? Consider 
just how reasonable it is, how rational it is that we should look to Christ for meaning in life. And then consider the opposite. How unreasonable, how irrational that a believer would look to anything outside of Christ for meaning. The first half of our text declares Christ as Lord of creation. The second half now declares Christ as Lord of salvation. Verse 18, he's the head of the body. The head of the body, the church. This speaks of his rule, but it's not limited to that. The term head here speaks of direction, of life, of sustenance. Jesus made the world and Jesus sustains the world. Stanza two, Jesus made the church and Jesus sustains the church. Jesus holds it all, the world and the church together. Jesus is the continual life source for the cosmos, his creation. And he's the continual life source for his new creation, the church. See, the church at Colossae was in danger. They were being pulled away. And that's the question. Would the church at Colossae, Paul didn't have the answer to this in the moment. Would the church at Colossae be pulled away? Would they see Christ as not enough? and try to add life to the church by their own philosophy? Would they rely on the traditions of men to make them right with their creator? Would they search for sustenance, for life, from things that they were adding to Christ? Or would they rely on Christ alone as their source of life, for sustenance? In order to help them escape the imminent danger that surrounded them, maybe within, maybe from without, seems like, most likely from without, since Paul commends them for their faithfulness within, Paul draws their gaze to Christ. He draws their gaze gaze to the Lord of creation and the Lord of salvation, to the head of the body, to the only source of true life. There is no life in the body apart from the head. No life in the body apart from the head. Christ is the very fountain of life. Your Christology then, we see here, directly affects your your ecclesiology. Your Christology, Christology directly affects your ecclesiology. What you believe about the body, the church, is born, if it's proper, it's born from your Christology. So at FFC, we seek to make much of Christ because without Christ, there is no FFC. Without Christ, there is no church. Christ is our ruler. Christ is our sole source of nourishment in this church. We're his creation. We're his masterpiece. And we exist here to fulfill his eternal purposes. He is the beginning Or as the last paragraph stated, he is before all things. He reigns supreme in the church. He's unequaled. There are no rivals to his headship within the church. And if there are, away with them. His supremacy is seen clearly 
in our text and throughout the scriptures in his resurrection. Our text tells us that Christ is the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn of creation, firstborn from the dead. Now, this doesn't mean that he was the first to be raised from the dead. We know that the scriptures give record of others. One who Christ raised from the dead. Firstborn again means that his resurrection is different. It's different. It accomplished something that no other resurrection could. Christ was the first to be raised and never die again. The firstborn from the dead. The first to be raised, never to die again. The words of Christ in John 14, 19. Because I live, you also will live. Christ's resurrection then is the first of many. We too will be resurrected and never die again. His resurrection then is evidence of his supremacy in his church. Of which he is the head and we are the body. His resurrection then guarantees the resurrection of the body. This was done, our scripture passage tells us, that in everything he would be preeminent. All of this, that in everything Christ would be preeminent. Verse 19. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God dwelling in Christ. Now, God dwelling. What does that draw your mind to? God dwelling. This is Old Testament temple language. The Old Testament temple was the assigned location where God's presence would dwell with God's people. Paul's saying here that Christ is the better temple who fulfilled completely that role. Now, today we don't look to the temple for God's presence, to that location. No, we look to the better temple. We look to Christ and we see the full presence of God in Christ. You want to know who God is? Look to Christ. All that God is dwells in Him. We look to Christ and see all the fullness of God. All of God's power in Christ. All of God's attributes in Christ. But what about this pleased the Father? It says it pleased the Father. It pleased God that all his fullness dwelled in Christ. Verse 20. And through him, Christ, or the head, to reconcile to himself all things. Let's note what's pleasing the Father. It pleased the Father that his fullness dwelled in Christ. That pleased the Father. And it pleased him. That through Christ, his creation would be reconciled to him. In Christ, through Christ, to Christ, all things reconciled to Christ. The text speaks of creation in that first stanza, then of reconciliation. 
what happened to the creation to put it in need of reconciliation. Though We went from creation to reconciliation. What happened? Sin happened. You see, all things were created through Christ, for Christ. But sin severed the relationship with the Creator that the creation was meant to experience. Bill puts it this way. Speaking of the whole story, he says it's a story written up in a narrative of a world made good, gone wrong, and being put right. A world made good, gone wrong, and being put right. All things, our passage tells us, are being put right. All things. All things are being reconciled to God. Kuiper said it this way, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign of all, does not cry, Mine. Everything being reconciled to Him. All things created through Christ, all things reconciled through Christ. His recreation, or His reconciling work, then, if He created all things... His recreation must also be of eternal scope. For centuries, false teachers have wrongly taken this passage and they've argued for universal salvation. But the immediate context here immediately puts that conclusion, if you will, to an end. Verse 15 of chapter 2 says that He, Christ, in His resurrection, disarmed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Christ created these rulers, these who were in opposition to Him. And our passage tells us, and our book tells us here in Colossians 2, that He triumphed over them. He defeated the enemy. So to say all of creation will be reconciled means that all of creation will rightly give God the glory. All of creation will rightly, one day, give God the glory. All created things will one day rightly bow to their Creator. We find that in the reconciling work of Christ in Colossians 1. We find that throughout the whole of Scripture, that one day every knee will bow with the same extremes in heaven in earth, and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And they will do so, culminating in the goal of creation to the glory of God the Father. How did Christ accomplish this, though? How how is He reconciling creation? Our passage tells us, by the blood of His cross, Christ made peace by the blood of His cross. A scholar said, God turned murder and an instrument of death into an atoning sacrifice that brings life and peace. Our sin made us enemies of God, but Christ who knew no sin is the one who makes peace with us. 
Praise God for this one-sided process of reconciliation. Peace made possible, not in our efforts. No peace made possible by Jesus Christ. We deserve what these rulers and authorities got that we read about in Colossians 2. We deserve to be put to open shame for our sin. We deserve judgment. But Christ invaded enemy territory to die for the enemy. He died for us. His life and His death in the place of ours. Making peace by the blood of His cross. The head once crowned with thorns, now crowned with glory. Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, both prove that Christ is the Lord of salvation. A proper view of Christ is an always ascending view. We know more of Him. As we know more of Him, we realize simultaneously just how little we actually know of Him. But the more we do know Him, the bigger our view of Him is. Do you believe that Christ is Lord of creation? And that Christ is Lord of salvation? So we reach this question. What demands do these truths make on our lives? What demands do these truths make on our lives? Unbeliever, I have bad news for you today. You can't coordinate your own path to be reconciled to your Creator. There's no amount of scheming, of planning, or doing to reconcile yourself to the Creator, to put yourself right with a Creator. Without God's divine initiative, you have no hope, zero hope, to be right with God. But there's good news. We've read about it this morning. In this passage, we see that God has taken the initiative in Christ. And the scriptures tell us that it delights God to reconcile his creation to himself. So hear this. God would be pleased to make peace with you today. God would be pleased that by the blood of Christ's cross, you would be made right with him. Our text has put forth a glorious Christ, one who is supreme, one who is above all. Gaze on him today with eyes of faith. The one who shed his blood for you, the one whom God raised from the dead, and bow to Christ's supremacy. Bow to Christ's supremacy today. Be reconciled to God by grace, through faith. Bow to Christ. Repent. Of your sin. Many here have bowed in faith to Christ's supremacy. You've believed on Christ. You've trusted the finished work of Christ. You were once an enemy of God, but now you are reconciled to God. The scripture calls us heirs. We are heirs of God. We live in his household. Don't forget. That living in this household, we still bow to the supremacy of Christ. The gospel is for Christians. 
bow to the supremacy of Christ. Bowing is for Christians. We repent and we believe the gospel for salvation, but we know we repent and believe the gospel for maturation, for growth. Bow to the Creator. Bow to Christ and declare your allegiance to Him. See, bowing to the supremacy of Christ, we could view that as an inward bowing. That's a posture of humility, of submission, of control that is not ours. But this inward bowing will inevitably lead to outward action, declaring our allegiance to Christ. So let's consider a few ways now that we would do this, that we would declare our allegiance to Christ. We confess Christ as Lord over creation and over salvation. We confess that He's more than just a force that arranged this world and put it into motion. No, He created the cosmos. He holds it together. He's the very reason for it. You could say He's the logic behind its existence, your existence, for our existence. Or as John puts it, He's the logos. The universe is not self-sufficient and neither are you. We are all dependent upon Him. Your physical being, your spiritual being rely completely upon Him. Christ is over all creation. He's over salvation. Confess the supreme Christ as Lord of your life. And then church, we need to say the same thing of us. The church is not self-sufficient, nor are its members We, as a church, are completely dependent upon Him. We must acknowledge that day after day, moment by moment. As a church, we must confess Christ as supreme. Christ as Lord. Confess Christ as Lord over creation, over salvation. Live a life of obedience to Christ's commands. Live a life of obedience to Christ's commands. Obedience to the commands of Christ put on display the preeminence of Christ's glory. Obedience to Christ's commands displays the glory of Christ. That's what we exist for, church. To put the preeminence of Christ's glory on display. We, as a church, were created by Him and we were created for Him. So it's only reasonable that we live our lives completely for Christ. Are you living a life of obedience to Christ? Another way we declare our allegiance to Christ is we tell the nations of the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. We tell the nations that God's ultimate purpose is not to judge and destroy He will judge. No, His ultimate purpose, not to judge and destroy, but to reconcile. His ultimate purpose, to renew, to make peace by the blood of His cross. What are you proclaiming as you go and tell? As you tell others of Christ, what are you proclaiming? What we should proclaim is that Christ is already Lord. 
that he is worthy now of all praise, honor, and glory. If your view of Christ isn't getting bigger, something's gone wrong. You, like the Colossians, are in danger. You're in danger of being swept away by something that is Christ-diminishing. By a Christ-diminishing gospel. And I'm here to tell you that gospel, as Paul will tell them, is no gospel at all. A Christ-diminishing gospel is one that attempts to add to Christ or to take away from Christ. Whether it's through philosophy, maybe it's some practice, or maybe it's a tradition of men. Don't be deceived by a false gospel. These false gospels, whether we see them through media of some form, whether we hear them in short, pithy statements, they're vying for your attention. They're pulling at you. But of all things vying for your attention today, Paul has told us Christ is the main thing. Christ is not in a tie with anything. Christ is not in a tie with anything else. He is everything and everything should please Him. Everything reconciled to Him, showing His preeminence. So today embrace the supreme, sufficient Christ. Embrace the true gospel. Don't be pulled away by a false gospel. If we embrace Christ as supreme, we will live in a way that declares the preeminence of our Savior. If we embrace Christ as supreme, we will live lives fully pleasing to Him, as the beginning of the chapter tells us. If we embrace Christ as supreme, we will bear fruit in every good work while we increase in the knowledge of God. If we embrace Christ as supreme, we'll have strength for joyful endurance and patience in our lives. Let's pray. God of every grace, you've supplied everything we need to be reconciled to our Maker. You've supplied everything we need to be holy. And to be happy forever. All that by the blood of your cross. There is none above you. None before you. All of time is in your hands. Your throne, it remains forever. All power, all glory are yours. You are the supreme one. And you are worthy of all our trust. We praise you, the Ancient of Days. Amen.